Well, this morning we are wrapping up a sermon series that we've been in for the past couple of months where we've been looking at the life and story of Joseph is told in the, the latter third of the book of Genesis. If you remember, we've seen this Joseph uh, live an incredible life, a life full of both incredible heartbreak and betrayal, as well as great joys and blessing. We've seen him betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused of sexual assault, thrown into prison, and now exalted uh, to the right hand of Pharaoh. We see him become one of the most powerful people in all of the ancient world as he prepares Egypt uh, to give grain through a seven-year uh, global famine that they're going through. And so we come uh, to the grand finale of Joseph's story uh, this morning in Genesis chapter 45. If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Scripture reading for today comes from Genesis 45, 1 through 15. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now <clears throat> do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brother talked with him. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. Seated. You know, one of the great challenges and frustrations of Christian ministry Indeed, of any uh, Christian attempt to give testimony or to talk about our faith, uh, but ministry in particular, as I feel it, uh, is that it is part of my job uh, to articulate something that's beyond articulation, uh, to describe something that you can never, ever understand just by hearing it described, right? The Christian life, uh, the Christian faith is ununderstandable uh, apart from an understanding of grace, and the thing about grace is you can't talk to somebody about it and help them understand it uh, apart from being it, it kind of happening to you and being experienced by you. 
It's something that, that hits us like a truck in some ways, something that you can't quite explain to somebody with just words. So I find myself oftentimes um, in the position of being someone, imagine if it was your job to try to explain to someone what being in love was like. Right? You find yourself either left blabbering uh, and talking in sentimental kind of trite stuff, or you find yourself heaping up too many words to try to understand it and parse it all out. But it's just this thing that comes to us, this intervention in our lives, this thing that, that just takes us aback. I sat with one young couple in our church who just had a baby, uh, and we were sitting in their living room. And I had talked to him a little bit beforehand about, hey, this is what it's going to be like. This is what it's going to be like. You know, don't worry. But then when I sat in front of him and said, hey, so what was it like when you first held your daughter? It's like, oh, man, you didn't tell me it was going to be like that. It was overwhelming. Right? And so sometimes the things that are most visceral in our lives, those things that are the most kind of heart level, it's easier to show them than to talk about. Right? That's why I would rather read uh, or watch a love story to see the story of, of love than to read a how-to book about how to fall in love. Or you'd rather see a, a movie, one of the great kind of romantic movies, that just kind of sweeps us up into it, helps us to get a better taste of what it's like to be loved and to experience love uh, than listening to somebody talk about it. And that's the way it is with grace uh, many times that the church has had some incredible expositors of grace, right? We think of Paul in the New Testament, who just in Romans and Galatians uh, has these incredible words, incredible pictures to flesh out what grace is. We have Augustine and we have Calvin, these great expositors of grace. And yet I think there's more grace in this story, this true story of the reconciliation of 12 brothers uh, than we can ever understand maybe by listening to people talk about grace, is to be swept up into a picture of how grace works in human lives. This story is a story that is dripping with grace. I use dripping uh, really literally. Uh, this is a story, this story is a weeping, tear-filled mess of a story. By the time it ends, there's 12 grown men, 12 hairy bearded, smelly, you know, ancient people, old men just falling all over their necks, crying over each other, weeping over each other and embracing one another. This is a story of a group of men uh, just melted, absolutely made undone by the experience of grace. And so hopefully as we see them moved by grace, uh, we will come to taste a little bit of the grace that's offered to us in Jesus. Grace begins for us uh, like it does uh, for these brothers when we find ourselves caught and exposed, guilty without excuse. Now, we've been, you know, the author of Genesis has been doing this thing where uh, Joseph recognizes his brothers for several chapters before they come to know who he is. And we, as the audience, are let in on that, that drama. We know that Joseph is meeting his brothers that while he keeps his identity uh, hidden from them, that he knows who they are, but they have no idea who he is. And so imagine these brothers, when they hear from his lips these words, I am Joseph. I'm Joseph. Can you imagine how their hearts must have sunk 
into their stomachs when they heard, this is Joseph, the brother that we left for dead, the brother that we threw in a well, sold into slavery, and shipped off out of our jealousy and our desire to profit. That that one, that that's Joseph, the one that we had assumed to be a slave or a corpse somewhere, never having to deal with him again, now the most powerful person we have ever met says to us, I am Joseph. Behind my Egyptian robes, behind my throne, behind all this power, I am Joseph. The one that you have sinned against most grievously, the one you've betrayed, the one who you've wronged more than anyone else in this world is the most powerful person in the world. That is not good news to them. That is not, oh, happy day, my brother. No, this is, oh, no. We're dead men. We're done. The only, uh, the only example that really came to mind on this, and I try to limit, I, I try not to do too many gladiator quotes uh, because I find that to, to date me a bit. Um, but if you remember the movie Gladiator, Russell Crowe, right? Commodus, the, the evil emperor of Rome, betrays him, he kills his wife, kills his son, thinks he's dead. And then he comes in and he, you know, he becomes gladiator and he's fighting people and he gets the crowd all behind him. And there's this moment where Commodus, the, the evil emperor, comes before him and he says, who are you? And he finally removes his helmet and he says, I am Maximus, father of a murdered son, husband of a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance. Right, and you're in the audience, you go, oh, snap, he's going to get him. This is going to be awesome. This is going to be vengeance. It's going to all happen. Right, that is the moment of what's going on here when he says, I am Joseph. Joseph's brothers think, oh, we're done. He's going to get vengeance. We're, we're, we're absolutely done for. Oh, no. And, you know, grace starts with that moment of, oh, no. That moment of realizing uh, that the one that we have offended more than anyone else in the universe, the one that we have wronged, the one that we have betrayed, is the most powerful figure, the most powerful being in all of the universe. Right? That all of our sin, all of our anger, all of our lust, all of our greed, all of our jealousy and our pride, all of it, no matter who else we've wronged in this life, all of it is primarily focused on wronging the God of the universe, the one who's absolutely powerful, right? David, uh, the king and psalmist, sums it up in, in uh, Psalm 51, his great prayer of repentance, right? After taking uh, another man's wife, having an affair, getting her pregnant, and killing her husband, after all of that, he says, God, it's against you and you only that I've sinned, right? All of my sin, even though I wronged other people and hurt other people, most, most of all, I've wronged you, my creator and my maker and the king of the universe, Grace starts when we recognize, when we honestly acknowledge that we're guilty of cosmic treason, that we've wronged the one who made us and who rules the world. You know, grace uh, in and of its, its very nature is absolutely free. It costs us nothing to receive the grace and love of God. The only thing that it costs us, the only thing that grace costs us is our pretensions of our own goodness. You cannot keep that. You have to lay down that feeling that you've been working to maintain, that you're good, that you're moral, that you're upright, that among the human company of sinners that you stand out like a shining star of righteousness, 
That you cannot keep. You have to lay that down. And like Joseph's brothers, say, oh man, I'm caught. I'm exposed in all of my guilt and all of my badness and all of my need of forgiveness. I'm laid bare. For some of you, as difficult as that sounds, as bitter as that pill might be to swallow, it will be the greatest release and relief you've ever experienced in your life to finally stop pretending. Some of you uh, live with this constant sense that there's something about you that just has to stay hidden. Right? You go around feeling like a poser and a pretender, sometimes maybe even like a hypocrite. That if other people or God knew the truth about me, if they knew what was really inside of myself, my weakness and my frailty, all of that, if they knew that, then I'd never be loved and I'd never be accepted. It is incredibly good news to see that you've never fooled God for a minute, that he's seen through all of your act, that those parts of yourself that you want most desperately to keep hidden, he sees and it's exposed. And the first thought is, oh no, oh no, the holy and righteous God sees me as I really am. But uh, for us, as for Joseph's brothers, after exposing us, grace looks upon us with tear-filled eyes. Look at the, the miracle of this story. The miracle of this story is that Joseph, the one who's been wronged, the one who has every right to throw them in prison or to have them hanged, that Joseph melts before them in tears. Right? That when he reveals himself to them, he does so with tears in his eyes. Right? When you're caught, when you're exposed, you expect that there will be tears. Right? You expect when you're caught doing wrong that there will be tears, but you know that they'll be yours. That you'll be weeping in fear or in pain or in punishment or in shame. But in this story, as Joseph exposes them, as he lays bare their guilt, his eyes well up with tears. He's moved with compassion for them, with pity for them. His heart breaks with longing for them, with joy over their repentance and their coming back to him. That Joseph comes towards them with tears in his eyes, with compassion. And in this, of course, Joseph is a beautiful and nearly unbroken mirror of Jesus for us, right? What, a, what an incredible miracle. It, this, this makes this one pale in comparison, that when the God of the universe came near to us, when the God of the universe, the God who's been offended by human sin, when he pulled open the heavens and stepped into, into our world, he did so not with eyes narrowed and glaring with rage and judgment, but with eyes damp with tears, right? Think about it. Think about the Jesus that we meet uh, in the Bible. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus looks out upon the crowd and has compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, right? When Jesus looks at the mass of, of sinful humanity, he does it with compassion, right? He sees us, yes, Yes, as those who sin, as those who wrong him and who wrong his God, but as those who have been ravaged by sin, as those who've taken uh, the bait on the bad offer of temptation and sin and whose lives are a mess because of it. Jesus is moved with compassion. 
When Jesus stands outside of Jerusalem before he heads in for what will become his crucifixion and death, he weeps for the city of Jerusalem. Right? He doesn't weep for himself. He doesn't weep because of what he knows is coming and his own pain. He weeps for the city that's going to betray him and its idolatry and its sin. He weeps for sinners. And then maybe uh, the most beautiful verse of the Bible, John 11.35. It's the shortest verse of the Bible. If you ever grew up in a youth group and were challenged to memorize one verse of the Bible, right? you, you might have started with, Genesis, with, uh, with John 11.35. Jesus wept. Two short words. That there at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, while Mary and Martha, his friends, and Lazarus' his sisters wept, Jesus wept with them. He wept not... Not for himself, he wept not even, he wept some for Lazarus, that Lazarus had to taste the pain of death, but he knew that just in a few verses he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Right? He wept because of the bitterness of living in a fallen world. He, whipped, he wept because of the sadness of these sisters. Jesus wept in compassion for this world that we live in, for the sin and the mess that we've made of our own lives. Jesus wept. And that's not only the shortest verse of the Bible, it may be one of the most powerful. Right? That before Jesus washed us in his blood, he bathed us in his tears. That before Jesus covered over the guilt of our sin with his blood, he covered over our sadness and our shame with his tears. Have you ever had somebody weep over you? Have you ever shared your story with someone, whether it's the stories of your own shame and, and guilt, the stories of your own sadness and what's happened to you, and had them weep for you. I had an experience, a powerful experience, just a few, uh, few months ago, sitting around uh, with the, the men who are in training to become elders of this church, and we shared our stories with one another. And as I was sharing my story, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we got to a hard part, we got to a part that I could barely get out without starting to tear up a little bit. And then I looked out and I saw them crying. It made me feel so loved, so cherished. Like they really understood what I was going through and what I was sharing. And then they started crying. And then, of course, at that point, I just lost. I'm just done. You know, now I'm crying. Right? But the experience of having someone weep over your sadness, weep over what's hard in your life, can open up something in you, open up a compassion within you that I think really does mediate the love and concern of God for us. Right? There, there are those of us here, I count myself probably among you, who have a far easier time believing that the blood of Jesus' cross is for us and covers over our sin than we do believing that Jesus' love and tenderness of us, crying over us, can heal our shame and take away our broken heart. Right? It's, it's far easier for some of us to believe that, yeah, through some kind of weird, divine, Old Testament math, Jesus died and that covered up my sin and now it's like I didn't sin. I, we can kind of grasp that as strange as it is and as miraculous as it is, that kind of weird math. But to actually believe that the God of the universe moves towards you in compassion, that he loves you enough to weep over what's sad in your life, that he loves you enough to weep over your guilt and your shame, to weep over your abuse and your addiction, to believe that he actually loves you in a way that actually moves his heart towards you in compassion. For some of us, that is a bridge too far. To believe that God, 
uh, can come near to us in that way. And yet that's exactly what Jesus reveals to us. That one day Jesus will wipe every tear from every eye. That's what we read in, in Isaiah 25 in our assurance of pardon. One day he will dry all of our tears. But until then, he weeps with us and he weeps over us in this life. And then we see that grace uh, not only sees us with tear-filled eyes, but grace restores us to communion. It restores us to relationship, to vital and living relationship. Look at the way that this reading ends. I just, I absolutely love the end of this, this little passage. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. If you notice, this whole story is like one long monologue from Joseph. It's like he's so overcome with the emotion that he just starts going. He just starts talking. And then finally, after he falls in tears over his brother's neck and them on him and he's kissed them and all that's gone on, this, this big emotional display, after that, his brothers talk to him. Doesn't tell us what they, what they said. Sorry about all that, Joseph. <laughs> you know, sorry, sorry about everything we've done to you. Joseph, we're so glad to be back. We don't know what they said. But we know that after this experience of Joseph's compassion, after his, after his tears of grace, after the, the, the assurance that he's not vengeful towards them, he's not angry towards them, that he's, that he's reached out to them in grace and embraced them, after that, they speak with him. They start to talk with him. They start to, the bonds of brotherly love and fellowship start to be re-knit toward, towards one another. If you think about all the, the words that you share with your siblings, if you have them. So some of them joking, some of them deep, some of them serious, but, but they start to reweave that connection in their words. They start to talk again. And grace is always oriented towards the restoration of communion. That's what it's all about, right? That's what the cross is about. That's what Jesus' death and resurrection, that's what all of the big theological words that we use justification and propitiation and sanctification and all these big $10 words that Paul loves to use and that we in the Presbyterian and Reformed Church love to use, all of those things are simply a means to an end of restored communion with God. The point of all of it is to get us back face-to-face -face conversing with God as children to a father, that it's about a restored communion, a restored fellowship with God in Christ. That's why prayer is such a big deal in the Christian life. That's why prayer is so central to the Christian life. Because all that prayer is, if you want a, a, a definition or a picture of prayer, it's Joseph's brothers starting to talk to him again. It's us having been convinced of God's love and mercy for us, starting to, to open up and to talk back to God, to starting to bring back our words to him, trusting him with what's going on in our lives. That's why prayer is central. That's, you know, I say that as someone who's never been particularly good at prayer. I'm not somebody that anybody would say, you know, Dave is a prayer warrior. Uh, I'm somebody whose ADD kicks in most fiercely uh, when it comes time to pray. I'm somebody that, uh, apart from a, a couple of cups of coffee in the morning, uh, I'm going to fall asleep before I get to my second line of prayer. But it's absolutely imperative 
that we learn to pray, that we learn to live our life before God the Father in prayer. It's, it's what all of it's for, that we would be reunited to communion with God. That's why we try to provide for us, uh, as a church, ways to pray. There's a, there's a booklet uh, there on the back table, on the Connect table, uh, that's daily prayer and scripture reading. Uh, we'll have another one coming out in a few weeks to guide us through Lent and Easter. But it's to give us, you know, there's no magic in those words. Some of you might, might have opened the book and said, man, there's, there's scripted prayers here. Where, where, where I'm reading my prayers or using the Psalms to pray. You know, I'm not telling you how to pray. Treat the, you know, th these might be, maybe think of them as uh, training wheels on your life of prayer, right? This is acknowledging that sometimes we need words for prayer. Sometimes we need guides to help us. And there are no better guides than the Psalms, right? There are no better guides than, than the prayers that God's people have been praying for centuries, and so we put those things together to give us language to pray because it's absolutely vital uh, that we learn to pray because grace always restores us to communion. And then finally, uh, grace eventually, it takes a while, but grace eventually overcomes our resistance to it. Uh, flip ahead, if you would, to Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. So uh, here's what happens between what we just read and what we're about to read. Uh, Joseph and his brothers are restored. They go down to Canaan and get Jacob, their father, and they bring him up and they settle in the land, right? They're given some of the best land in Egypt and they grow and then Jacob eventually gets old. The famine passes and Jacob comes. Uh, he gets old. He blesses his children and he dies. And so we, we don't know exactly how many years have passed. We know that it's at least five that have passed between this scene of gracious, blabbering, tearful reunion and grace in this moment where Jacob dies. And at Jacob's death, uh, look what happens to his brothers. I'll read in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died, which is a lie as far as we know. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of our father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You see what's going on here? At least five years later, their, their father dies, and the brothers still don't trust that Joseph forgives them. They still don't trust that his grace towards them can be relied upon. They get fearful that now that Jacob's out of the way, Joseph's going to do what he really wanted to do all along, and he's going to take out his vengeance on us. So they're even afraid to say that to Joseph, so they make up this story about, hey, Dad really wanted you to be nice to us. It was his last words, right? It was be, continue to forgive your brothers. They still don't trust that grace can be trusted, that it can be relied upon, that it can be relaxed into. 
They still believe that Joseph is just waiting for his moment to punish, to get even, to extract justice. Now, this is, this is both kind of tragic, a little bit funny, um, and deeply comforting for me. <laughs> because there are most days that I wake up that at some corner of my soul, I am desperately wondering if God loves me. If God really, really forgives me. If the gospel really is true. Why? Well, because I've had another 24 hours of, of chunking sin back onto the pile of stuff that's between me and God. Right? I've got the unbelief of my own heart. I've never, I've never loved nor been loved by anyone in a way that's truly unconditional, utterly forgiving, never asking questions, right? That kind of love is supernatural. It's, it's beyond our capacity for understanding. And so every one of us, every day, struggles to believe that God really loves us, that the cross really does cover over our sin, that Jesus really did pay it all, that there's not going to come a day where God eventually gives us the, you know, the, the catch in the offer of the gospel where he says, no, no, now I'm going I'm to, I actually am going to ask you to work off what you've done. I'm going to ask you to be good enough or try hard enough, right? His brothers still haven't learned that grace is something that's never changing. It's a foundation that they can just live into and rest in. They still haven't gotten that they can't lose it. And guys, that is the battle of the Christian life. Right? There's, that's what the, the journey into Christian maturity, that's what it looks like. Yes, yeah, sometimes we get a little bit better. Right? We might become a little bit more loving. We might grow in our generosity and our capacity for, for love or courage or self-control. We, we, we really can grow. But often that growth looks primarily looks like actually believing what we said we believed uh, when Jesus first intervened in our lives. It's the hope that by the time Jesus is done with us, we can say what we started singing as a child, maybe. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Right? It's, it's not moving beyond the basics of Christ's love for us in the gospel. But it's learning to actually let those basics shape our identity, shape our inner life, shape our prayer life, shape our love life, shape our relational world, believing that we really are his beloved that his grace for us can never be lost and that we can live into it. It took uh, Joseph's brothers a lifetime to believe that grace was true. And it'll take us uh, a lifetime of learning just how deep and just how broad and just how amazing God's grace really is. Let's pray.